Well, good morning. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. So glad that you are here today. Um, as David mentioned to you, we have a photographer here this morning, so don't be alarmed. And if I do a little bit of extra of this today, you know, yeah. just kidding. I'm glad you got to uh, meet, those of you who are, are brand new, get to see a, one of the vibrant ministries represented this morning, the women's ministry, and uh, get to see Gina Woodall, who is our leader and doing a great job in that ministry. The women, uh, as she mentioned, are going on a retreat soon. We think it's a little excessive that they're going to the south of France, but... And I don't want to say the men were jealous, but we have decided to take a retreat to the south of Wake County. It'll be in Fuquay. It'll be a short retreat. It'll so. Uh... Well, we've already been talking about covenant this morning. We had a responsive reading that focused on the theme of covenant. When you hear the term covenant, what springs to your mind? That may depend on whether or not you live in a neighborhood with an HOA, a, a, a serious HOA, right? Uh, you would be familiar then with terms of like declarations of covenants, uh, conditions and restrictions or restrictive covenants. And if you live in such a neighborhood or deal with real estate law, then most likely when you think about covenant, you think in legal terms. If you are a churchgoer, uh, you may hear the term uh, covenant in relation to marriage or church community. And in such a case, you would think of covenant as relational. So, is the biblical theme of covenant legal or relational? You knew the answer before I even asked it, didn't you? Yes, it is both. If this is your first day at Grace Community Church, you, you will have seen on the slide or on the screen already that we are in a series in the book of Hebrews. In fact, you probably, we, as you know, we had microphone trouble last week, uh, uh, and so consequently we've had to switch around a little bit, and I might be blowing on you today, I guess. Um, but... You probably already knew that before you came. Most likely, if this is your first time at Grace, you checked us out online and you saw that we are in a series of Hebrews. Now, if you walked into Grace or in most churches on most Sundays, you could just pick up right where the pastor is preaching on any series or any theme or any book of the Bible. It's probably a, a bit more challenging in the book of Hebrews because it is one long, very sophisticated argument for the better sacrifice, the better covenant that we have in Christ than we did in the law. Uh, don't be discouraged though. Uh, you can hear the previous sermons online and furthermore, we're in a section, a long section of Hebrews where the author is saying a lot of the same things in different ways, but he's saying them over and over. So we have chance to absorb them. And it also lends itself, these chapters that we're in lend themselves to uh, preaching on themes or considering themes. So that's going to help us with a big picture understanding of all of Scripture. And it hardly gets bigger than today's theme, which is Old Covenant and New Covenant, or Old and New Testaments. 
Look, we all know the benefit of thinking biblically. That's why we're here this morning. I want to hear from the Word. I want to hear from God. The Bible is God's Word. And if you're here, if you've been here any length of time, you know we're serious about Scripture. We believe it is the inerrant Word of God. But Hebrews teaches us to think theologically as well as biblically. To understand Scripture in its full context. Ironically, the author of Hebrews is unknown other than that we are confident that the Holy Spirit led someone to write this remarkable sermon, put this sermon on paper, and send it as a letter to a group of believers, most likely Jewish Christians who lived in Rome somewhere just around the time that Nero began systematically persecuting Christians and putting many of them to death, either just before or just after that persecution had begun. And so a lot of the the people who were reading this letter were thinking about going back to Judaism because, look, at least the Jews weren't persecuted the ways Christians are being uh, persecuted in this day midway through the first century. Of course, they didn't know it was the first century then. They didn't realize that Jesus Christ would have that much of an impact On all of history. The writer of Hebrews said, look, your situation is bad. And I I understand why you're thinking about making a change. But you are basing your decision on temporary circumstances. But they're going to have eternal consequences. Do not walk away from Jesus. In the flow of his argument, the author gave strong scriptural support that Jesus was God's plan for the redemption of His people and that Jesus was and is, in fact, very God Himself. The blessed truth for which we give thanks this morning at Grace Community Church is that Gentiles have been brought in to God's covenant family. There were Gentiles in God's family before Jesus, but now... We have been welcomed in droves. Our text this morning is Hebrews 8, 1 through 13. And once again, the topic is Old and New Covenants or the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because God is holy and requires perfection, His covenant with His people covers every aspect of legal requirement to satisfy His holiness. And he interacts with his creation down to the last detail. You remember Jesus? We read last week in Matthew 5 said, Every dot of the letter of the law, every down to the last detail has to be fulfilled. And I have come to fulfill it. Because God loves his creation. Because he is holy, there is the law. Because he loves his creation and his people. And his, his, his plan of redemption for us is relational. And his covenant is relational. Through the gospel, we're able to relate to him in a way that is better than the law. That's the, news of the, good, uh, uh, that's the good news of the covenant. The new covenant. Typically, at Grace Community Church, we'll stand and read the scripture this morning. I'm going to be 
praying and then we'll just work our way through the text because it works out far better that way as we work our way uh, towards the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, we come to you recognizing that we are only here because of the mercy and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made and the high priestly service that he renders on our behalf in this moment. He is the mediator of a better covenant. And we're blessed. This morning, Lord, give us understanding in your word as we think about the ways that you interact with us through covenant. Recognize, Lord, that you have designed creation to work according to your glorious and beautiful plan. And we're so thankful that in Christ we have life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the first two verses of Hebrews 8 serve as a summary of what the author has been saying for quite a while, that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. These first two verses also serve as a transition. They begin to move from from why Jesus is qualified to what exactly it is that he does in heaven on our behalf. We get a a sense of the scope of Jesus' high priestly office in heaven where he ministers. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now now the point in what we are saying in this in the Greek, it really says now the main point that we are saying is this. We have exactly the kind of high priest that we need. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Verse 1 is an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. Now we talked over and over about how Psalm 110 is the basis for this sermon of Hebrews. But typically it's been verse 4 that's been emphasized. But now it's verse 1 where it says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. The one that Jesus quoted to the Pharisees when he was giving evidence that he was indeed the Son of God. Um, So, just think about that posture. Jesus is seated at the hand of God, the right hand of God. Being seated at God's hand indicates that his work of sacrifice is through. That doesn't mean that he's through serving us, but the sacrifice itself has been done. In verse 3, the writer begins to talk about Jesus' heavenly ministry. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. In other words, a high priest has a job to do. And Jesus' job is to offer his blood as a sacrifice for our sins. Now, verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. What in the world is he saying there? What, so Jesus' 
is only a high priest in heaven and not on earth. Well, yes, he's been making this case over and over. That priests come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. His priestly ministry, high priestly ministry, is in heaven. Not as it is here. That theme is going to continue. Verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. He's talking about the priest here on earth. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, the writer is saying, I'm not just making this up. This was already spelled out in Exodus 25 verse 40. God said to Moses, you, here's, the, here's the real thing. Now you make a copy on earth. So here is a taste of what is going to be given in more detail in coming chapters. Life here is but a shadow or a picture of the real thing. Think of how different that is. That, that is as a way of thinking as opposed to what critics of Christianity say. What do they say to you? And I am certain that Somewhere in your life, there's somebody who's saying, oh, you're worshiping that pie, pie in the sky God. Is that what you're doing? Everything's going to be all right. Just pray to God and it'll be okay. Hebrews presents the opposite. Heaven is the real deal and this is only in a picture. In fact, it is a shadow of the real thing. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to, em- going to talk about the danger of overemphasizing the idea that this life is a shadow and the reality is in heaven. This earth is very real, but it's only a picture of what good is happening in heaven. It, it, it is a significant danger, so we'll, we'll talk about that. The tent that the author references in verse 5 is the tabernacle. Now, what was, what was, we'll take just a minute and let Ruth get out. What, where, what was the the reference point for worship for the Jews in the first century up until A.D. 70? It was the temple in Jerusalem, right? What we're going to see about worship here on the earth in these next several chapters in Hebrews revolves around worship that was in the tabernacle before the temple was built. The tabernacle was mobile wherever God was. Uh, The people had to pack up when God was ready to move. They had to pack up the tabernacle and move with him. So it's interesting that, that, that Hebrews chooses the tabernacle for his illustration of, of the old covenant and then instead of the temple where people were worshiping to that day, people were taking animals to Jerusalem. They were being sacrificed and a lot was going on in Jerusalem. So why do you think that he talked about tabernacle worship rather than temple worship? Well, for starters, the worship that, he's, that is described in the law in the Pentateuch in the first five books of the Bible revolves around the tabernacle, 
The temple would come later. And he's making this contrast about the law that was given and the ways that the priests serve in the tabernacle. And so that's what he uses to contrast the new covenant. But I wonder about this too. Think about it. The tabernacle was here. The people would worship the Lord at the tabernacle. Then the Lord would say, okay, now we're going to move. And the people, the covenant community of God would go with him. And they would worship in there. Maybe it's, it's, it's a picture of what it's going to be for the Holy Spirit to live within us. That's one of the things that the author is making a big deal about. Is that God is now in you. You don't have to go to worship Him. He is in you. The people gather absolutely. He's going to make a huge point about that in Hebrews 10. You can't just go to the lake as a family and worship God in the same way that you do in church on Sunday morning. It's it's not designed to be that way. The covenant people of God gather together and worship. But they gather here. They gather down the road. They gather... All around the world, Allison and I prayed for several churches today. And the gospel that goes forth all over the world already going forth in Australia. And a lot of parts of the world. So, God meets with his people where they are. Just a thought. Verse 6 gets to the heart of the distinction between the old and the new covenants. But as it is... Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he, Jesus, mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. Look at that again. I'm not going to explain it. Just let it sink in. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry in heaven that is much more excellent than the old on earth as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And then verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. The author presents two covenants to his readers. Old covenant, which the readers would have known as the Mosaic covenant. The law. Just another explanation. And then, as he will call it in the next verse, by the name that Jeremiah gave it, and we've already used in responsive reading this morning in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. Now, of course the author would have been aware about the covenant that God made with all mankind through Noah and, and with the Davidic covenant and with the Abrahamic covenant. He would have known about all of those Covenants, but his focus was on the Mosaic Covenant or the law and the New Covenant. I think this would be a good time for the deacons to bring in pillows. I'm seeing some of you. uh, It's a daze at this point. Old Covenant, New Covenant. This is where it really gets interesting though. Some of you have heard this several years ago, or little bits and pieces of it now, but this is a good reminder, and if, you, if you're new the last two or three years, this is interesting stuff. The model for the various covenants that God presents in Scripture was the, was the suzerain-vassal treaty. It was a treaty in which two kings would get together and make an agreement. Now look, 
kings in that day didn't have to be kings of, of great territories in Abraham's day. I mean, you might have the king of Fuquay-Varina, the king of Andrew, the king of Bowie's Creek, you know. All, all. You would have kings for small groups of people. But a larger king, a greater king would say to a lesser king, okay, you and I are going to make an agreement here. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't an agreement between equals. A greater king would say to a lesser king, okay, here's the deal. You pay me taxes, you pay our land with goods from your land, services, we're going to have people come and do this. And then, since you're king of Anger, if, if the king of Coates attacks you, we're going to come and save you. So we're going to take care of you if you give, this, give the tribute that we require of you. And if you don't, well, let's have a little ceremony and show you what's going to happen. Uh, instead of signing a treaty, what they would do is have a ceremony. It was a very unusual ceremony. They would cut animals, cut several animals in half, all the way in half. And they'd line them up in a row. And the lesser king would walk through and say, if I refuse terms of this treaty or if I refuse to if I fail to meet the terms of this treaty then may be done to me what has been done to these animals may it be done to me may I be cut in half and the, and the greater king was essentially saying you break the treaty I'll break you occasionally they would walk through together but for the most part the lesser king walked through and essentially said okay if I break this treaty, I understand I'm in big trouble. Now, you know what's really significant? When the treaty was ratified was when they ate the cooked portions of the animals that, or, or the cooked the portions of, the, of animals that were cooked. The ones that had been cut, then they, they cooked them and ate together. And that was the same as us signing a treaty. It's not like, hey, hey. See this legal document? It, it was like, hey, we ate together. Do you not remember? We were all there. And you've broken the covenant. You've broken the treaty. The covenant was ratified at a meal. Are we having a meal today? Are we having a meal? Significant. The suzerain vassal treaty was the model for the Abrahamic covenant in which God promised that he would make his family great in all the earth. A family loved by God. And then you know what God said? Adam or Abraham, prepare the animals. Abraham cut the animals in half. He kept the beast away. Kept everything. And then God put him into a deep sleep. And in verses 17 and 18 we are told this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. This is very clearly God. It's a theophany. It's an appearance of God in a particular form. The flaming torch, the smoking fire pot is God. And then verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. With Abram. Do you understand what was happening? Who was the greater here? God or Abraham? God of course. God made the promise to Abraham. And here are the conditions he put on Abraham. 
Well, now, wait, look, there's a lot more to Genesis 15, but fact is he didn't put any conditions on Abraham other than you and your male descendants are to be circumcised. So when Abraham walked through the pieces of animals, what was he forced? Now, wait a minute. Abraham didn't walk through the animals. God walked through the animals. So what's the point? You know what he was saying? God was saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And when you fail to honor me in the way that I honor you, I am going to take the punishment upon myself. That's a pretty good deal. No conditions. Only a promise. 430 years later, at Sinai, God gave the conditions that his people were to keep. He said, okay, I've made this covenant with you. I haven't put any restrictions on you. I haven't put any demands or expectations on you. Now we're going to do that. And it's going to be through the law. God gave his law to the people. And the people were excited about that. And they were pretty optimistic about keeping the law. In Exodus 24, after Moses told the people that God would give them the law, he took blood and threw half of it on the altar. (coughs) And then this in Exodus 24, verses 7 and 8. Then he took the book of the covenant, the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That didn't last very long, did it? And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You know what he was saying when he threw that blood on them? If you don't keep the conditions of this covenant, what happens? Same thing that happened with the animals. Blood on you. You hear those words again, don't you? When Jesus is on, is, Pilate says, this man is innocent. And they said, his blood be on us and on our children. Do you see what's happening in Exodus 24? God laid out the stipulations of the covenant for the people. They agreed to the terms. Moses threw the blood on them. But they were never going to be able to keep the terms of the covenant because of the sin problem that every one of us has. It's impossible to keep the law. Have you ever broken a promise? If you have not, you've got a far bigger problem, and that's pride. But God issued the terms of the covenant in the law because He is perfect, and it is necessary to satisfy His holiness with the binding covenant that must be kept. That's the legal aspect of the covenant. His holiness requires it. But our God is also a relational God and desires relationship with His people. And after centuries of failure by His people, and it was clear that it it was never going to be kept, God said in Jeremiah 31, I'm going to make a new covenant. Hebrews 8, 
repeats, uh, quotes the text in, in Jeremiah 31. So we're going to read it from Hebrews uh, 8, starting with verse 8. For he finds fault with them. By the way, that he finds fault with who or what? Almost all the English translations put it as in the people. He finds fault with the people who could not keep the old covenant. Some say that it's referring to the old covenant. Depends on whether it's in the dative or the accusative. It, you, it's, it's not, it's, either way it's true. There's a problem with the old covenant. And the problem with the old covenant is that there's a problem with the people being able to keep it. So if you're living your life saying, I just need to be good enough for God to say, okay, you get in. Your neighbor doesn't, but you get in because you've been pretty good. You're never going to be good enough. He finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, not the Mosaic covenant. That's not this new, it's not what this new one's going to be. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That sounds very relational, doesn't it? The law will be written on their hearts as in the Holy Spirit will lead them. We now understand that to mean. Last week when we talked about law and gospel, there's so much that was left unsaid. For instance, it's always, it, it, it struck me years ago, I thought, wow, I wonder what this means. And then the more I understood about law and gospel, the more I understood what Paul meant in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, when he gives the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, not that it's really any big deal, but it's fruit of the Spirit, not fruits. Of the Spirit. I, I don't know what the significance is. Some people say it's the fruit of the Spirit is love and everything else flows from love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and then you've got six other qualities there that are in our lives when we are led by the Spirit. But then the Apostle Paul writes this amazing little sentence afterwards. He said, Against such there is no law. <clears throat> If you're walking in the Spirit, the law is not going to condemn you. It has nothing to say to you. It's not that you won't keep the law. You will keep the law, but you will do so from a gospel perspective in the power of the Holy Spirit rather than out of an obligation to keep the law or else. If you don't keep the law, you're in big trouble. Verse 11. And they shall, shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. <clears throat> All know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. They will know the Lord, not just academically. It's not that they will know about him. But relationally, experientially, they will know the Lord. 
And then the great promise in verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Why? Because you finally kept the law? Because you finally are a good person? You, you broke that, that, that habit that was enslaving you? Is that why? No! You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We're not forgiven because we have straightened our lives up, got our acts together. If God forgives your sin, it will be because He took the punishment for you. Just as He promised Abraham. That's what He did when He sent Jesus to die for your sins. The old has passed and the new has come. And then verse 13, it's going to need just a little bit of explanation. And we're done. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So what does he mean by that? Is there no further need for the law? Should we just throw it away, the law away, and focus on the gospel? First, remember this. The covenant is both legal and relational in nature. The covenant that God has with His people is legal. Every detail is as it should be. But it is also relational since we can't keep it. The author of Hebrews is saying that God no longer relates to His people through the law. It's not that the law is insignificant or 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 unnecessary now. It's just that he does not relate to us through the law. He relates through the gospel. If you are are God's child, he relates to you through the gospel. Now, if you're not a child of God, if you are seeking to hear God say, you've been good enough to get in, then I'm sorry, he is relating to you through the law. And that's trouble because nobody can keep it. To be guilty of one, we saw from James last week, is to be guilty of the whole thing. But as we will see at the Lord's table, God relates to His children through the gospel, mercifully forgiving their sins on account of the sacrifice that our great high priest, Jesus, made on their behalf. In heaven... Jesus offered his blood for the sin of his people. But that doesn't answer the question, should the law be discarded? No, again, remember, the law reveals God's character and his desire for his children. And the New Testament writers say everything that the Old Testament writers do. Do not murder. Don't commit sexual sins. Do love your neighbor. The law shouldn't be treated as a distant um, ancestor whose picture we have hung on the wall and we admire and recognize it. Oh yeah, that's all so and so. But then largely forget it. The law does have meaning for us, but not with regard to our relationship with God. And it's hard to get through that through our heads because we tend to every day measure whether God's pleased with us based on what we've done, whether we've been good enough or not. If you are a believer, God looks at you and he sees Jesus and he's pleased. 
but I did this, I didn't do that. Repent, that's why he calls us to repent. Life is a, our lives are lives of continual repentance, confessing our sins. And God is faithful to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The law has its place in the believer's life, but it has no value whatsoever in making you right with God. If he doesn't initiate the payment for, for, of debt for sin, then we have no hope. And so we come to the Lord's table not simply to perform a ritual, but to affirm our belief in what God has said about his covenant with us. Now look at Jesus' words in Luke 22 on the night that he was crucified. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do you see how it all comes together? When Jesus raised the cup, he was about to walk through the pieces. He was about to say, I am going to take the punishment for you. My body will be broken. My blood will be spilled so that you won't have to pay for your sins according to the law. I will take your punishment for you. I will walk through the pieces. And then the disciples ate and they drank. And the covenant was ratified. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was evidence that the Father accepted his payment for sin. Is the new covenant better than the old covenant? <laughs> Absolutely. God loved you enough to send Jesus to meet all the requirements of the old covenant. And then to take the punishment for covenant breakers. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus even as he poured out his blood for you. And this morning, life is yours. When you acknowledge your sin, repent of your sin, and place your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, deep waters, but refreshing, wonderful, life-giving waters. In the word and in the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you Jesus. For taking the wrath of God that was rightly pointed toward us. Lord as we have already shared together. In our responsive reading and as we have prayed. I believe. Help my unbelief. Bless our time at your table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As the elders and the deacons and the worship team come forward uh, to serve communion, I want to invite all those who confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior to join us at this table today. After the scripture is read, um, the, the, the service, those on the front row are going to partake first at the Lord's table. And then you will be invited to come forward. You can do that. The, elder, the ushers on the interior rows will 
alert you when to come forward. Go to the station that is in front of you. Take the bread, take the juice, and if you want to, you can partake right there or you can take it back to your seat and partake. Either way is fine. After you have received the elements, then either go back up this middle aisle or go back the outside aisles. Again, there will be people to help direct you uh, for that. For those of you who are unable to come forward because of health or some other reason, uh, just stay where you are, raise your hand, and there will be someone in the back who will come and serve you in your seat. Let's return to Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, all of God's plan is coming together at this moment. It's all coming together, all this covenant. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not eat of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So the kingdom of God, which is already here but not yet here fully, is what we anticipate in the future. This table not only causes us to look back, to look into our hearts now and confess our sin before we come to the table, but it also encourages us to look forward. To the time when Jesus will reign in the kingdom of God on earth. Then verse 19 says, He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Take just a moment, if you will. The scripture encourages us, it warns us not to take this meal lightly. But that does not mean that if you have sinned this week, which you surely have, that you shouldn't come. It means thank God for his forgiveness. Repent, confess your sin to the Lord. And come and eat this meal in gladness for the sacrifice that was made for you. Father, as we acknowledge before you that our lives are not what they ought to be, not according to the law, we confess freely that we have sinned as believers with the Holy Spirit living in us and the word written on our hearts. We confess that we have sinned. And we ask that you forgive us. Lord, we thank you for the bread that represents the body of Jesus broken for us. And for the fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Jesus spilled out, poured out for our sins.
Thank you, Jesus, for loving us that much. Thank you, Father, for your great plan. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that binds our hearts together as one. And as we approach this table, we do not do so only as individuals forgiven. We do so as the covenant community of God. Grateful for our life together that we have in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I was reminded this week uh, about another covenant and another meal. That scripture is bookended by the covenant of marriage. We see it in Genesis in the garden. And in Revelation 19, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb. So please receive the blessing from God's word. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And all God's people can say, Amen. Amen.